we've been in this series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. This is week 30 that we're on now. And yeah, that's cool. 30 weeks. We're doing it. And if you, if you want to know what authentic Christianity actually really looks like, there's no better place to look than the book of Acts. And then when you open up the pages in the book of Acts and you ask this question, what is the central argument here? What is the centerpiece of the book of Acts? The answer is the resurrection of Christ. Now, why is it not the cross? And the answer is the cross gives us, Christ trades places with us on the cross. Christ purchases the forgiveness of our sins. But if there is no resurrection, then we are forgiven into an eternal death. So the question that we are asking today is, is there a literal resurrection? Now, oftentimes when I talk to people, um, I'll meet somebody new, they'll be talking about Christianity, and uh, they're like, yes, I'm a Christian. And then I'll ask something like, do you believe in a literal resurrection or a figurative? And often I hear, I believe in a figurative resurrection, which means I believe the way that Jesus lived was good and right. Like everybody loves Jesus, right? He's about forgiveness. He's about authenticity. He's against hypocrisy and he's, a, he's about love. We like these things. So, I be, so people will say, I believe more in a figurative resurrection, meaning all of those things because of the way that he lived, live on today. Or people will say something like, well, you know, we live in a scientific age. Back then was more of a mythological age, so people could believe in those kind of things, but we know better today. It's a lot harder for us to believe in the resurrection today. And what we're going to find today in our verses is it's quite the opposite. It was just as difficult back in the time of Jesus to believe that he rose from the dead. And that's why an argument is, breaks out in this council of the Sanhedrin. And so I want to set the scene for you. Um, of what happens in our verses. So when Christianity is birthed, a villain is birthed. His name is Paul. And Paul makes it his life mission to take Christianity down. And so he is sent to this city called Damascus, is on his way to Damascus. God smiles, a holy and giddy laugh erupts from him, and God meets Paul on this road. And Paul has this experience with God that moves him to faith. Paul then returns to Jerusalem to find all of his old friends who were persecuting Christians with him. Now those old friends of Paul want him dead. So the, the Christian leaders say, Paul, you got to get out of here. So Paul leaves and he goes off on these missions to spread the news of Christianity all around the surrounding area. He has trials along the way. He meets some new friends along the way. And he becomes, he matures into what could be called the greatest movement leader in the history of the world. And all the while, his sight is set on returning back to Jerusalem. And then one day, the Holy Spirit tells him, Paul, it's time to go back. But just before he goes, his friends also hear from the Holy Spirit. And they say to him, Paul, if you go back, you're going to die. And before he leaves and before he gets on the ship, they're weeping and they're kissing him. They're embracing him like Paul don't leave. And he says, what are you doing breaking my heart? Do you not know that I am ready to go and die for my Lord and my Savior? So he boards the ship. He steps into Jerusalem. He walks right into the temple. As soon as he gets there, they beat him to the point where he cannot walk. 
Then they take him and they drag him before the tribune or the commander of the city. And then Paul somehow stands up and he begins to give the speech. And a whole riot breaks out because of it. So the commander of the city is like, I got to figure out what's going on here. So I'm going to torture Paul. Just before he starts to torture Paul, Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. And so what the tribune or the commander of the city says is, I'm going to send you to the Sanhedrin. Now, this is not good. Paul was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the people that did most of the work to get Christ crucified. The Sanhedrin have just pushed James, Jesus' brother, off a wall to his death. Paul knows all of this. And Paul appears before the Sanhedrin, and that's where we pick up in our verses. Here we go. And looking intently at the council, this is the Sanhedrin, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived... That one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, this is the commander of the city, afraid that Paul was to be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify to me also in Rome. All right. By the way, we're doing Q&A again today. So if you have questions, make sure to text them to me, the normal number. If you don't have my number, it should be on the screen at some point. You can just text your questions in as we go so there's not an awkward silent moment while I'm waiting for questions to come in. Okay, deal? Okay. So... The, so why is there so much conflict when they begin to talk about the resurrection? And here's why. And you might be surprised to hear this. But the leading sect in Jerusalem, the leading party were the Sadducees. And they did not believe in an afterlife. This is, these, this is the Jewish religion. The leading people did not believe in an afterlife. They believe when you die, you're simply done. You cease to exist. It's over. But the Pharisees come along they're contenders, and they say, no, there is a resurrection. There is life after this. Now, okay, this division is true to this day. In fact, I, I don't know. I think you've noticed this. We're in a Jewish temple right now. And the reason we normally meet at 10 a.m., but it's a Jewish holiday today, so they needed the building at 10 a.m. So we pushed it back to 5 p.m. And when I met with the rabbi a few months ago, I asked him, is this still a thing today? Like, do you believe in an afterlife? And he said, well, we're kind of divided about it. 
And he said, look around at all these names on the wall. This is a lot of way where people, the way people live on for, in their minds. So the question we are asking today is who is right? And we're going to argue for a resurrection, and we're going to argue for a resurrection through nature, through scripture, through history, and through life. So nature, history, nature, scripture, history, and life. All right, so here we go. Here's nature. Now, you might say, David, look, I didn't see anything about nature in our verses, and you would be right. However, the Pharisees and the Sadducees both see nature as a window to understanding God. So I'm studying Psalm 19 with my discipleship group. And this, it's this beautiful psalm that's beautifully written about the handiwork of God in creation. In other words, God's fingerprints are all over creation. And the greatest handiwork of God is the death and resurrection of Christ. And here's what I want to tell you about the resurrection in nature. There are clues left everywhere about the resurrection in nature as you look. Now, have you guys heard of the allegory of the cave? This is, it's a story or an allegory, and it goes like this. There are people who have been chained in a cave to stare all of their lives at a wall. This is all that they do. And, and it's like, this is our life in this world. And at the entrance or mouth of the cave, there is a bright and shining light, and every time an image of something passes by the mouth of the cave, a shadow is cast on the wall of the cave. And so these people who've been chained all of their lives, all they know is this cave. So when they see a shadow, they think that's real stuff. That's the real thing. And what the allegory of the cave is trying to teach us is that these are simply shadows of real things. There are greater things, things that are heavier, weightier, more material. And what Christianity comes along and says is that's exactly right. That everything that we see in creation, it's a shadow of something greater. It's a clue. It's an image of something more. So I, I want to just show you this. When we look at creation and we're looking for the resurrection, here are our clues. Here are the shadows. The rain falls from the heavens down to the earth and life comes up, resurrects out of the earth. A seed, when a seed falls into the earth, it breaks open and dies and then life bursts out of it. Psalm 126, this is really cool. It says, when we cry tears of sorrow, of suffering, they water the earth and it causes an eternal spring to break up out of the earth. And what this imagery is showing us is that when you suffer, when you have pain in your life, and when you mingle that suffering with faith in the resurrection of Christ, life will bring forth into your life. Like There'll be new life in you. In other words, God will not waste your pain. All right, let's keep looking at creation. In quantum physics, there's this idea about the bit here laughing. I heard that you really love quantum physics. Yeah. So um, quantum physics, there's this idea or theory. I think it's a theory that the building blocks of life, if you get down to smaller things than even than atoms, the whole universe is built on these vibrations, now, okay, that's interesting. Now, let's say in five years we find out it's not true. Okay, fine. But if it is, that's interesting. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, what you're going to find is that before God created everything, there was a void, there was a darkness, there was an emptiness, there was a nothingness. And then the Spirit of God, 
hovered over the face of the deep, meaning he's hovering over this nothingness. He's, he's, he's hovering like a, like a hummingbird, like creating these vibrations, this energy. And then when God speaks words into these vibrations or this energy, life bursts forth. Eden is created. Now, okay, that's beautiful. And what Christianity is teaching us is that, well, we have lost Eden. Like, everything we hope for is lost. Like, the good life has been lost. And what we're supposed to hear is, okay, we're back in the void. We're back in the darkness again. We're in the nothingness. And then the Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary. Christ enters into it, the Word of God, and then life bursts forth into our world, which means now resurrection. The potential of resurrection is now roaming the earth. There are hints of this everywhere. And what we have to learn how to do is to look beyond the shadows. Every flower that you see bloom, it's just a hint of the blooming of Eden that one day will come. If you want to master the art of looking at the beauty in nature, what you have to learn how to do is to not look at it. Don't look at the beauty of creation. Enjoy it for a bit, but don't stop there. Look through it, beyond it, to more eternal things. Second uh, Corinthians 4 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, meaning they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And you know the saying, be present. There is no better way to be present than to understand that everything around you is pregnant with, with, with resurrection life pointing you everywhere. Like, so many people are laughing right now. We have so many pregnant women in the Grove, it's wild. People are like, I'll meet people and they're like, yeah, we're a new church. Oh, that's so cool. How many people do you have? Like, whatever our number is, you got to add like six at least because at least six people are pregnant at any one given time. So, yeah, so life is everywhere. Resurrection is everywhere. Um, to be present, though, is to understand that every moment is pregnant with eternal things. Clues of Eden. Okay. Now, how do we know that? We know this from Scripture. Because Scripture is this divine special revelation while we're in the cave that comes into the cave, tells us these shadows that you see, everything that you see around you, this is just hints of something greater and more eternal. Now, okay, so the question you should be asking right now is why then, if the Pharisees and Sadducees both have scripture, why do the Sadducees not believe in eternal life, in a resurrection from the dead? And the answer is because the Sadducees only read the first five books of the Bible, and the Pharisees read the prophets and the Psalms and the wisdom books and everything else. Now, here's a lesson in reading scripture. You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're reading the Psalms, and the Psalms have resurrection everywhere throughout them. And then what they're doing is saying, okay, here's resurrection here. Now I'm going to go back to Genesis and know that the resurrection is true, and I'm going to start seeing it everywhere there. So when we read Genesis 3, when we hear we have been lost from Eden, we're, we're in the wilderness, we're wandering in the void again, what we're supposed to ask is, can God create again? Can there be a new creation? And can we be recreated? 
And so when you read scripture, you always have to read here, but then look back. It's like the movie The Sixth Sense, if you've seen it. If you haven't, this is a big giveaway. Um, we find out in the end, he's, he's, this little cute kid tells us this horrible thing that he sees dead people. And if you go back then and watch the movie again, you realize he's been talking to this dead person the whole time and you had no idea until the end. Now your mind is blown when you're watching the movie in the beginning because you know the truth. It's the same thing with scripture. You know the end with Christ and the death and resurrection. Now you go all the way back to the beginning and you see resurrection everywhere. And Jesus, the Sadducees come up to Jesus and, and they start challenging him about the resurrection. And he says to them, Essentially, you have memorized the first five books of the Bible, yet you have no idea what they say. The resurrection is everywhere. And he points to Exodus, the second book in the Bible. All right, so I want to tell you this about Scripture. Whenever I'm doubting, whenever God grows dull to me, whenever I'm not feeling alive to God, the best thing that is always for me is to go back to the Old Testament And see how all the promises, all the foreshadowing, all the ways that Christ is promised all the way back in the beginning. And I see them all like how it's just tracing it right through the Old Testament. And it blows my mind. I say, this stuff can't be made up. This is too beautiful. This is too ironic. This is too wonderful to be made up. So what I want to do is I want to read some scriptures for you in the Old Testament specifically about the resurrection. Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Just give me two more. Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up, and after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. And here's the last one. This is the best one. It's from Isaiah 53. Now, let me tell you about this chapter. This chapter has to do with the death and resurrection of Christ. And there's a book called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the writer of this book talks about this Jewish rabbi who he's friends with. And he asks the Jewish rabbi about Isaiah 53. And the the rabbi says, well, we all kind of know that this is about Jesus. We just don't really like to talk about it. So let me read to you what it says. And this is just part of it. It would be an amazing thing for you to do tonight is to just go and read Isaiah 53. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is the death of Christ. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. This is resurrection. He shall prolong his days. 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. The resurrection hinges on what you make of Jesus. Everything hinges on him and what you make of him. If Christianity is true, death has been buried in its own grave. But not just that. A new Eden has been promised, and it's coming. The Bible starts in a garden, and it ends in a city. And I want to tell you about Eden. Eden was not perfect. It was good. The Hebrew word that's used for good is tov, which means something is swimming in potential, but not yet perfect. And in order for Eden to become perfect, there was this mission between God, humanity, and Eden. And humanity was to partner with God to take the presence of God and have it cover all the earth. So that the earth would be filled with his glory. This, the whole earth would be a temple of God, the city of God. And that is the end goal. And the end of the Bible promises that. And here, So here is what that means. Everything sad that has ever happened to you or those that you love will come untrue. My son, who has this rare autoimmune disease, one day in eternity, I'm going to see the true version of him, and it's going to be glorious. One day, autism will be lifted, and you will see the most beautiful like, version of your kids that they've been meant to be. And the same true for all of you. You know, you look around people here, I just want you to know you are becoming so much more than you are right now. You are but a shadow on the wall of who you one day will become. And every sickness will be wiped away. All pain gone and death is no more. How amazing does that sound? But can you trust it? Because if you don't trust the Bible, you're asking yourself, yeah, that all sounds really good. But I'm not sure I believe it because I'm not sure if I can trust the Bible. All right, so let's do a little experiment. Let's move on to our next point. Resurrection in history. So what I want to do right now is something that most preachers would not do. And I don't recommend doing this often. We're going to lay the Bible aside. And we're going to ask about the resurrection without the Bible. And we're going to turn to people, a person that you would not think that we should turn to, critical scholars. A critical scholar is a, schol a historian who is not a Christian, who is looking at the events of Christ and saying, here's what we think about. Now, I'm going to give you six facts that virtually every critical scholar agrees with. The first fact is that Jesus was a real man who died by crucifixion. They'll say, here's how we know he, it was a real death. Because some people are arguing, no, he never really died. He just walked off the cross afterwards. Here's how we know he died. Because when a spear goes into his side, blood and water come out. Now, I don't know if they knew this back then, but what we know today is that a, a pocket of fluid or water fills up around your lungs. And so when, he, when the spear goes in him, both blood and water come out. So that's the first fact that virtually all critical scholars believe. Second fact is all of the disciples believed they saw him risen from the dead. And not just the disciples, but 500 eyewitnesses believed that they saw him from the dead. So the argument is, well, this must be like a mass hallucination. And the critical scholars say, well, no, 
Never in history have we seen a mass hallucination by multiple different people in multiple different places at multiple different times. In other words, it's pretty much impossible for it to be that. And so then we say, okay, here's the third fact. Then we would argue, well, it must be a lie that the disciples made up. Okay, well, here's what the critical scholars say. Liars make horrible martyrs. So you might die for something that you believe to be true if you're brave enough. But if you know you have made something up and a knife is at your throat, you're going to say, ah, you know what? This was a joke. Did we get you? No, we didn't get you. Okay, can I go, please? And about half of the disciples are crucified. They all die horrible deaths, all of them proclaiming Jesus is Lord and he's risen from the grave and they're not backing off of it. I mean, one guy is skinned alive and hung upside down and the whole way through he's saying, Jesus is Lord and I will say nothing else. All right, next fact. Paul, a murderer of Christians, has a sudden change in conversion. Now, some people might say, well, Paul's making a power play here. He's trying to get some power, and he's just seeing Christianity as a way to do that. Well, if you say that, you haven't really looked at the life of Paul, because Paul's life gets incredibly worse after he becomes a Christian. And the whole premise of Christianity is that Christ has come not to take power, but give it away. And Paul teaches that all throughout his teaching. So that doesn't make any sense, the critical scholars say. Okay, fifth fact. James, the, son, the, the, the half-brother of Jesus... He's skeptical of Jesus' whole life. He thinks he's a crazy older brother. And then Jesus appears to him, the risen Lord, and he believes. And not only does he believe, he also, he's the one who was thrown by the Sanhedrin off the wall to his death. He dies, and the Sanhedrin is saying to him, deny that Jesus is risen, and he said, I can't do it. Throw me to my death. I will not deny this is true. Sixth, this is the last one. Now, I will tell you, only 75% of critical scholars believe this one to be true. But that's still, this is a majority of people who aren't Christians saying that this is true. And they say that the tomb was empty. Now, there's an argument, one, two arguments here. The first argument is that, well, they didn't know where the tomb was. Well, we know that's not true because Joseph of Arimathea owned the tomb. And they could have just found Joseph and said, hey, where's the tomb? All right, that doesn't work. Second argument is they stole the body. Well, the reason this doesn't work is because there are 17 or 16 warriors guarding the tomb that Jesus is laid in. Why are there 16 warriors there? I mean, these aren't security guards. These are warriors there. And they're there because Jesus has been saying, I'm going to rise from the grave. And they want to kill this movement. And so they send them there to guard the tomb. And yet somehow his body is gone. So when you add it all up, the most logical conclusion is he has risen from the grave. And you know what that means? It means all of it's true. It means everything we see here and right now, this is but a shadow of something far more beautiful and wonderful. It means that if your life is dull, there's a whole wide world out there of things, beautiful things to go discover. And when you discover them, it will put wonder and awe and excitement in you. So how could you live a dull and boring life? And it also means that you can trust scripture because it's all adding up. And you know what that means you can stop doing now? You can stop trying to figure out what to make of scripture and you can start wondering what does scripture make of you? 
All right. Now, if you still are not a Christian in this moment, and if you are a Christian and have not been moved into worship right now, why is that? And the answer is, and I'm not talking about lifting up your hands. I'm talking about like a joy is bubbling up in you. And if that is not there, why? The answer is because you need an experience. This is our last point, resurrection in life. Paul has an experience on this road to Damascus where he meets the resurrected Christ. He talks about it last, he talked about it last week and he's going to talk about it next week in our verses. And, and look at what he does. So he looks right at the high priest. And there could be some irony here. He could be being sarcastic. But basically what he does in this whole exchange is he calls him a whitewashed wall. He says that to the high priest. Now, this is an expression. And what it means is you look great on the outside. But on the inside, there is a void. There's an emptiness. There's a darkness. There's a nothingness. And you are crumbling on the inside. But you look great on the outside. In other words, he's saying you have never experienced God. Now, this is wild because the high priest is the only one who's allowed once a year to go into the presence of God. So Paul is calling him a major phony right here. Christianity is far more than some intellectual experience. On the road, Paul has an experience. He gets, it's an intimate experience with the resurrected Christ. Now, he didn't earn it. In fact, it's quite the opposite of him earning it. Paul was a villain of Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He wanted this thing dead and gone. If you have to have just like, an, like a little bit in you of like effort to become a Christian, if it's like, like people will say, uh, if, as long as God knows I'm trying hard to be good, he's going to love me and accept me, of course. Well, I'm sorry, but if you read the Bible, you have, if you say that, you have far too view of God, small view of God and far too small view of this future Eden that is to come because there is nothing, like trying hard doesn't get you into something that is, is beautiful and perfect and pristine as Eden. One thing does in its perfection and none of us have it. So the solution is that Christ comes and he, on the cross he takes on all of our sins and he's buried into death, but he rises. I, I, I'm starting to believe that the enemy of belief is trying hard. Because it makes us feel like we can earn our way. It makes us feel if we just do a little bit, then God's going to love us. And it's, it's absolutely none of that. It's utter and pure dependence on God and God alone. And nothing else. Because if you had to try hard, Paul is out. But he becomes one of the greatest movement leaders in the history of Christianity. So it has to be something else. And it's faith and faith alone. And, and even your growth that happens in your life happens by dependence on God, not something you're mustering up within you. It's something that he's doing to you. And that means everything is by grace. Christ became like us so that we might become like him. The one who is perfect became imperfect on the cross. He held our sins so that we who are imperfect might become perfect. He came, he was the, he was the, 
the Son of God, immortal, who came to be mortal so that we could become immortal. And, and eternal, and if I might even say, divine. And I say that because we are swept up into this Trinitarian dance with God, and he lives within us. And if something that's divine is living in you, what else do you call it? He is Eden come into our world. And do you know what he did when he came into the world? He came into the void, into the darkness, into the emptiness. Only something so extreme as the death and resurrection of God himself can open up the gates of Eden. That and nothing else. He's the perfect seed of heaven who's been dropped into the earth. And when he's dropped, he's broken open on the cross. And then he's buried underneath the guilt and the filth and the waste and the dirt of our sin. And then he descends even further into the hellish abyss of nothingness. And there, when he is there, the spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. And God, the Father, raises him from the dead. And when he raises him from the dead, he is pure and perfect and beautiful because he left all of our sins down there in the depths of hell so we never have to deal with them again. Our past, present, and future has been dealt with forever. And, and all that is left for you to do is believe. And the Bible says your heart is like soil. And your soul is like soil. And, and so what, what happens is the spirit of God starts hovering over you. And then the word of God, Christ, is deposited into you. And when that happens, resurrection begins to brew up in you. And now you are becoming more and more of who you're made to become. You're not there yet. And you won't be until you're in eternity with him. But every day is this slow walk up the mountain, becoming who you're made to become. And if you are the person who, who is saying, gosh, I just want to clean up my act a little bit before I come into church. Or if you're the person who's saying, I, I just need to get better fast. That's not Christianity. Christianity is slow, inside-out growth. It's something that's outside of you that's deposited in you, and now it begins to brew in you so you become something new. You're just right now a shadow of who you're meant to be, and you're being changed daily into something eternal. You're being changed into something so beautiful that when death does hold you, it spits you out. You're too beautiful for it can't stand the taste of you. And the future promise of Christianity is that one day, the resurrected king will return. And when he does, Eden will bloom and cover all the earth as it's always been meant to be. And then you will dance in Edenic fields. And you will sing beside angels. And you will run on the shores of paradise and absolutely everything sad that has ever happened to you or someone you love will come untrue. It will become undone and turned inside out. That is the promise of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief.
Give us a new sense of faith so that joy would bubble up in us. And it would bubble up so much that we couldn't help but worship you. And that we would become utterly dependent on you for everything. Because you, God, are the resurrection who has walked among us. And you've died and risen. We love you for what you've done for us. Teach us how to follow you. And teach us how to believe. And stop trying. But just rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official. And check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.